Hello, my name is Chiara Giorgetti and I'm a professor of law at Richmond Law School. In this lecture, I would like to explore the position of the individual in international law and especially focus on its evolution. Specifically, I will look at the traditional view of the individual in international law, how it has evolved recently, especially after World War II, and I will offer some comments on how it may further evolve in the future. Now, for the traditional view, International law is, in all, and as all legal systems are, based on an agreement um, which sees a group of individuals coalesce to create a recognized entity, in this case the state, that represents their interest, creates and enforces a legal system, and acts on their behalf vis-à-vis -vis other states. However, individuals, after creating the states, and therefore being necessary components of the state, do not play a role in international law and in the state uh, function as an international legal entity. Indeed, in the classical traditional view of international law, international law is the law that applies between state intranationals. It only states have rights and duties under international law. In the Westphalian system, cre it created a system of coexisting sovereign, and those states sovereignty are based on independence and equality between states, and by and large each state is sovereign within its own territory, and other states cannot interfere in other states' domestic affairs. In this traditional model, individuals are not subject of international law and no international have no international legal rights. It was left to domestic law to regulate individual and groups. Indeed, writing in 1912, Lasse Oppenheim, one of the recognized fathers of international law, treated individuals as objects of international law, whose importance was, and I quote, just as great as that of territory. And he claimed that individuals are never subjects of international, international law because, and I quote again, the law of nations is a law between states only and exclusively. States only and exclusively are subject of the law of nations. Rights and duties that individuals may have in conformity with international law, therefore, derive from domestic law only. However, a major shift occurred in post-World War II period. So that while states continued to play a preeminent role in international law, individuals also became increasingly more relevant in international law systems itself. Thus, by the time uh, in 1992 were a more recent edition of the Oppenheim Treaties, this time edited by Sir Robert Jennings and Arthur Watts, wrote uh, the most, a more recent edition, they said that the individual had acquired importance in international law and enjoyed certain rights. And here I quote, they say, the quality of individuals and private companies and other legal persons as subject of international law is apparent for the fact that in certain spheres, they enter into direct relationships on an international plane with states and have, as such, rights and duties flowing directly from international law. It is no longer possible, as a matter of positive law, to regard states as the only subjects of international law. And there is an increasing disposition to treat individuals within a limited sphere, sphere as subjects of international law. Other treatises, like the Brownlee or the, or the Malcolm Shaw, provide similar views. And a similar shift in attitude towards, inter towards individuals is found in international courts. So, for example, the Permanent Court of International Justice in the jurisdiction of the courts of Danzig exemplifies really the old traditional view to the individual. 
And this is a 1928 case related to an agreement between Poland and the then free city of Danzig in regard to railways employees. In that case, the court concluded that the officials had a right of actions against the Polish Railway Administration in domestic courts, as opposed to international courts for the recovery of pecuniary claims. And it says, and I quote, um, it held that it be readily admitted that, according to a well-established principle in international law, an international agreement cannot, as such, create direct rights and obligations for private, in, for, for private individuals. By 2001, the International Court of Justice, however, had adopted the new view of the individuals and the role of the individuals in international law. Thus, in Lagrande, the court found that the Vienna Convention on Consular Relations created international individual rights alongside those of states. This case, the contentious case uh, brought by Germany against the United States, the ICJ confirmed that the rights created by the Vienna Conventions are rights created by treaty, and they belong to individuals. Now, uh, what caused this shift in theory uh, that we see both in treatises and in courts? So I would like to now talk about why and how this shift occurred. What are the reasons that made this change possible and what made them permanent? What explains the doctrinal shift in relation to the individual that left to Lagrande, starting from the jurisdiction of the courts of Dante? I believe World War II played a major role in this evolution. World War II was a devastating war that involved many countries and resulted in a very large number of casualties. The vulnerable position of the individual in international society became very, very evident. And it was proven by the enormous number of civilian casualties suffered by all states. Moreover, the war was not only an international war, but it was also a war in many ways characterized by competing ideologies particularly the theorization of the especially callous ideology. Nazi Germany was not only at war with other countries in Europe, but also at war with parts of its population. The internal war targeted religious and ethnic minorities, and it was clearly demonstrated that the state would become an enemy of the individual and even of its own nationals. An additional explanation is the fact that in um, the war, World War II, created a large number of refugees that fled homes and, and resettled in other countries. That made the plight of refugees and the presence of refugees and the necessity to protect the individual very visible in many different situations. Other reasons, I think, also led to that revolution in the, in the, um, in the, in the perception of the individuals under international law including the visibility of the war and the media coverage, the closeness to World War I, and really very much the world reconfiguration that occurred after World War II. Indeed, the centrality of World War II is also seen in the Nuremberg process. The Nuremberg, the instrument that created the, the Nuremberg process and made that possible, was central in the transformation of the role of the, of the individual in two ways. On one side, it recognized that individual had rights under international law. On the other side, it also recognized the individual had obligations under international law. As for the first point, 
individual is recognized post-World War II as having rights, human rights, coming from international law. The process started with a political and inspirational commitment and culminating in the creation of international legal obligation, which created, in many circumstances, enforceable individual rights under international law. The United Nations Charter itself, which established the United Nations, contains in its very preamble a powerful reference to the importance of human rights. In Article 1.3 of the Charter, there's a reaffirmation that one of the purposes of the United Nations is to promote and encourage respect for human rights and fundamental freedoms for all, and without distinctions as to race, sex, language, or religion. And an equally important and more specific declaration in 1948 by the General Assembly, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, further specified those rights and proclaimed a common standard of achievement for all people and all nations. The declaration is momentous also because it provides specific individual rights to which everyone is entitled. And those rights include the right to, to life or liberty, the security of persons, the prohibition of slavery and torture, the right of recognition as a person, equality under the law, the right of effective remedy and to a fair public hearing, uh, the prohibition of arbitrary arrest and detention, and ar arbitrary interference with privacy and family, and so on and so forth. The next step was a next a comprehensive and general treaties. And in fact, in 1966, we have two treaties that pertain to human rights um, and provide very specific detailed rights to the individual. Of course, I'm talking about the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, the ICCPR, and the Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, both adopted in December 1996 and entered into force in 1976. In those covenants, the individual rights were found in several very specific subject matter conventions um, adopted, in, uh, adopted in 1966 by a large number of UN members. We continue in this evolution of protecting the individual with further agreements that provide much more detailed uh, rights. 1965 Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, for example, um, which entered into force in 1969, and several others relating to torture, for example, or the rights of women. On the other side, we also have similar developments occurred somehow both faster and sooner in regional at the regional level, especially in Europe. So that the European Convention on Human Rights, approved by the European Council, was open for signatures in Rome in 1950. And it requires signatures to secure to everyone within their jurisdiction certain rights and freedoms enumerated in the Charter. We also have regional agreements in the American Convention of, on Human Rights and the African Charter of Human and People's Rights. In sum, the acquisition of personal human rights by the individual has been an extraordinary development and includes a variety of different rights. Individual, individuals have rights recognized by numerous international rights. These are rights by the individual and these are international rights. They belong to the individual and states are under an obligation to provide them. The individual is also recognized as a subject as having obligations under international law. 
and the acquisition of individual criminal responsibility under international law is a significant step towards the recognition of another of international legal personality of the individual as these acquisitions of rights. The important development largely occurred in the immediate aftermath of, sec of, the, of the Second World War, and in August 1945, the US, the UK, Russia, and France signed the London Agreement, in which the parties agreed to create the International Military Tribunal, IM IMT, to try war criminals, the Nuremberg process that I mentioned before. The charter of the IMT provides that the, 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 the IMT has the power to try and punish persons who, acting in the interest of the European axis, uh, whether as individuals or as members of organizations, committed crimes against peace, war crimes, or crimes against humanity. The Charter specifically recognizes that crimes with this jurisdiction were based on individual responsibility. The recognition of individual criminal responsibilities for international crimes was not without criticism at the time. In its final judgment, the IMT specifically addressed some of those and noted that, I quote, it was submitted by Defense Council that international law is concerned with the actions of sovereign states and provides no punishment for individuals. And further, they were acts in question is an act of state. Those who carried it out are not persons personally responsible, but are protected by the doctrine of sovereignty of state. In the opinion of the tribunal, both these submissions must be rejected. That international law imposes duties and liabilities upon individuals as well as upon states has long been recognized. It, and again, it continued. Enough has been said to show that individuals can be punished for violations of international law. Crimes against international law are committed by men, not by abstract entities. And only by punishing individuals who commit such crimes can the provisions of international law be enforced. The significance of the tribunal's conclusion and the clarity in which it was expressed was readily acknowledged. And in fact, in December 1946, the UN General Assembly, upon suggestion by the Secretary General, directed the International Law Commission, a body of experts tasked with codifying international law, to formulate the principles of international law recognized by the Charter of the Nuremberg Trial and in the judgment of the Tribunal and prepare a draft code of offenses against the peace and security of mankind. The ILC presented an approved draft to the General Assembly in 1950 which included provisions recognized, um, recognizing individual responsibility for certain crimes under international law. The General Assembly acknowledged those principles, but took no further action at, the, at that time. And indeed, many years had to pass until the task was taken up again. We had to wait until the early 1990s to see, at the end of the, of the Cold War, the international community be confronted again with two events that result in the serious and protective violations of international law, and see the reaction by the General Assembly toward to those violations, and the creation of in the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, or ICTY, and the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, ICTR, both of whom found that the individuals have obligations under international law. So, for example, at the ICTY, the principle of individual criminal responsibility is articulated in Article 7, which states that the person who planned, instigated, ordered, committed, 
or otherwise aided and abetted the planning of grave breaches of the Geneva Conventions, war crimes, genocide, or crimes against humanity, shall be individually responsible for the crimes. The statute of the CTR also includes the same principles of individual criminal responsibility in essentially the same terms as the CTY. Article 1 gives the ICTR the power to prosecute persons responsible for serious violations of international humanitarian law, and Article 6 specifically provides for indiv individual criminal responsibility. The next step and a final uh, essential uh, validation of the principle of individual criminal responsibility occurred with the creation of the International Criminal Court, the IC or the ICC. The ICC was established um, through the 1998 Rome Statute and became operational in 2002. And it is a permanent international court with general prospective international criminal law jurisdiction. In the court statute, individual responsibility became a general principle of criminal responsibility. Article 25 provides that the person who commits a crime within the jurisdiction of the court, genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes, shall be individually responsible and liable for punishment in accordance with the statute. So what we've seen is an, a, very much of an evolution of the role of the individual in international law, both in terms of requiring the individual for, to be responsible for crimes committed under international law, and the individual has acquiring rights under international law. In addition to the rights uh, provided uh, to the individual as human rights, other rights are also created by treaty. Those including are, come from extradition treaties, treaties of friendships and the establishment, double taxation agreements, transport treaties, intellectual property treaties, investment protection treaties, treaties on the legal statutes of foreigners, and the Vienna Convention on Consular Relations. And several other treaties provide specifically for rights of the individual under international law. However, while these changes have been substantial, there are still several obstacles. In the words of German professor Christian Tomuschat, the transformation from international law as a state-centered system to an individual-centered system has not yet found a definitive new equilibrium. To be clear, rights and obligations are the individuals under international law, but there are limitations in a way in which the individual can access remedies and obtain redress. The limits are based on the fact that most rights and obligations are filtered by the states. Thus, there's a difference between the substance of the rights and the obligation or the procedural and the procedural law that attaches to that. So the one of the obstacles making it difficult for individuals to exercise their international right is the lack of appropriate international forums that give immediate access to exercise international rights and to receive remedies. While substantive thinking about rights of the individual has evolved at a confident place, functionally, the international legal system is still mostly constructed to respond and accommodate the rights of states. This means that while international substantive rights are increasingly given directly through individuals, individuals often have no immediate standing or any remedy available to access redress for violation of those rights. 
the state, as I said, filters that access of the individual to international remedies. Now, how does, that, how does the state do that? It does that in several different ways, which are all interlinked. First of all, it is always for the state to sign treaties where those rights are generated. It is whether it is the responsibility of the state to sign or not sign, and the right of the state to sign or not sign the treaty, and the individual has to conform to the choice of the state. So for the first way in which the state filters the rights is whether the state has signed the treaties, the, uh, that the individual is whether the state has signed the treaty that provides rights to the individual. The second issue is the issue of nationality. Now, as we know, it is for it is through nationalities that individuals acquire a status very often in international law. And nationality identifies and recognizes individuals under international law and often provides them with rights and obligations. At present, the, the system is central to the, the human experience in a global society. As Malcolm Shaw writes, the link between the state and the individual for international law Purposes has historically been the concept of nationality. And the function of nationality in international law is usually described as that of providing a link between the individual and the benefits of the law of nations. However, in international law, as the present constituted, nationality as a concept can only be defined by reference to the rights and duties of the state. Nationality, according to international law, is a specific relationship between an individual and a particular state, and it is the state that grants the right to permanent and conditional protection of the person and the property through nationality. However, relying on nationality creates several problems. First of all, there are limits created, for example, by the doctrine of dominant and effective nationality, which especially concerns dual nationals. The, this paradox is well explained in Nottingham, a case that the International Court of Justice heard uh, in, uh, uh, and that was brought by Liechtenstein. The case relates to the vicissitudes of Mr. Nottingham, a German national born in 1881. Mr. Nottingham lived in Guatemala from 1905 until 1943 but never became a citizen of Guatemala. In 1939, at the beginning of the Second World War, he applied to become a naturalized citizen of Liechtenstein. The application was approved in a very expedite manner and following the payment of a substantial sum of money in taxation to Liechtenstein. He then returned to Guatemala on his Liechtensteiner passport and informed Guatemala of his change of nationality. He traveled and returned to Guatemala again in 1943 after Guatemala's enter into World War II, but then was refused entry as an enemy alien due to his German nationality. Mr. Nottenbo's property was confiscated and he was extradited to the United States to an internment camp. After World War II, Mr. Nottenbo moved back to Liechtenstein, and in 51, Liechtenstein brought a case on behalf of Mr. Nottenbo against Guatemala at the International Court of Justice for unjust enrichment as sought redress on behalf of Mr. Nottingham. Guatemala, however, argued that Mr. Nottingham was not a national of Liechtenstein under international law, and the court agreed and found it had no jurisdiction to entertain the case. This is quite surprising and, in my view, wrong for several reasons. 
Mr. Nottingham lost his German nationality and only had Liechtensteiner nationality. By precluding access to the International Court of Justice because of his nationality was not genuine in the words of the court. Mr. Nottingham was effectively lost the capacity to access any international remedy. A second issue linked to nationality is the fact that more than 15 million people at the moment are stateless and do not possess a nationality. Therefore, they have no remedies under international law, under the nationality link. So in these cases, individuals that acquire procedural rights to seek remedies for violations of the international rights to their nationality only, because a certain forum is open to them thanks to their nationality are foreclosed to many individuals. In the matter of treaty law, nationality is an essential element in bringing individuals under the personal scope of certain treaties. But in this method, we leave out a substantial, a substantial number of individuals. Another important issue is the issue of espousals of claims. In most situations, the state represents the individual and brings, the brings a case in, in, uh, on behalf of the individual itself. This is called espousal of claims. But in certain situations, it's completely for the state to decide whether it wants to bring a case for remedy or not. Finally, I want to talk very, very briefly about the second-guessing states. Sometimes courts and tribunals review the nationality of an individual and decide by themselves um, whether to accept the nationality. I've seen the example of Nottingham, but this is seen already also in other tribunals and courts, for example, in International Investment Tribunal. In the case of Sufraki versus the United Arab Emirates, for example, an International Investment Tribunal denied jurisdiction to the claimant investor for failing to satisfy nationality requirements under the applicable bilateral investment treaty, notwithstanding the fact that the claimant's Italian nationality was supported by several nationality certificates issued by the Italian authority themselves. The tribunal concluded that despite the nationality certificates and unbeknownst to the claimant, the claimant had lost his Italian nationality and therefore had lost access to the benefits of the bilateral investment treaty. Mr. Sufraki's case was not heard by the tribunal and Mr. Sufraki had no redress against the United Arab Emirates. Linking the individual to the state to obtain redress has therefore several limitations. So what does the future hold and how can we guarantee the individual to have not only substantive rights but procedural rights only? How can we further develop the role of the individual under international law? There are some interesting important developments. For example, the European Court, Court of Human Rights requires that states, provides that the responsibility of states to ensure human rights under the European Conventions is based not only on the nationality of the individual, but is based on the controlling power of a certain territory. So that regardless of the nationality, a person who's under the control of a certain state, or the territorial control of a certain state, may bring a case at the European Court of Human Rights. The second example is that's provided by the International Criminal Court, whose jurisdiction is not only based on nationality, but is also based on where the crime occurred. So here we see two systems, two alter alternate bases for jurisdiction, 
They will provide a, an immediate remedy to the individual, not only based on nationality, but based on an alternative base for jurisdiction, or possibly a multiple base of jurisdiction, like the International Criminal Court. In summary, to conclude, in order to address the lack of procedural rights and grant the individual's access to international remedies for her international law claims, a new approach is required. An approach based not on nationality alone, but approached based on an alternative understanding of the characteristically with characteristics that identify individuals' claims under international law. We should truly rethink the position of the individual in international law. That only a new approach to international procedural rights would adequately respond to the gradually recognized idea that the individual is a separate subject of international law who not only has substantive rights, but also has procedural rights. And in that sense, we may give access to the individual, for example, to compensation for damages caused by the effects of climate change, for claims arising from war-related war injuries, for example, on the example of the Palestinians, or from multiple small investors' claims brought in a permanent court for investments. Thank you.